0: The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being re-syndicated here by io9.
1: Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode four of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be talking with author Marjorie M. Liu, author of the and Steel series and the Hunter Kiss series. Uh, she also writes comic books for Marvel Comics, the uh, Dark Wolverine and NYX. So, uh, so in this interview I, I found, they asked her, what did you want to be when you grew up? And she says, an astronaut, an Egyptologist, an archaeologist, namely Indiana Jones, starship pilot, doctor, folklorist, a female Magnum PI, race car driver, the human sidekick to Optimus Prime, and a Jedi Knight, which I think may actually be the most awesome thing I've ever heard. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this interview.
2: What did you want to be when you grew up, Dave? (laughs) I mean, you know, when you grow up, I should say, because you obviously (laughs) haven't grown up yet.
1: No, yeah, I think when I grow up, I want to be Peter Pan. (laughs) So on this show, we'll be discussing romance and superheroes and China. And sea monsters. And sea monsters. So uh, stick around after the interview, and John and I will have a bit more to say about superheroes. Uh, And right now, let's get to our uh, interview.
2: All right, let's get Marjorie on the phone.
0: Hello?
1: Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi! Thanks for joining us on the show. Okay, so uh, what are some of the books that had the most influence on you growing up, and what sort of early writing did you do prior to getting published?
0: Uh, No, the first one that comes to mind is Little House on the Prairie. Just Laura Ingalls Wilder. I, I can't explain it. I read her books over and over and over again when I was growing up. I just couldn't get enough of them. There was just something about—I don't know if it was the historical aspect of them or what—but just reading about this girl that was, you know, my age or just a little bit older, growing up, you know, without electricity, and it really captured my imagination. And so eventually, I went from, you know, Laura Engel Wilder to, you know, fairy tales, and from fairy tales to, you know, it's a, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from Puss and Boots to dragons and, and sorcerers and things like that. I think I learned how to read when I was three or four, and I think I learned how to write around the same time. I mean, it wasn't great writing, but, like, you know, I could write my name and, and hold a pencil and copy words and stuff. And I think I actually started writing little, you know, three-sentence stories or things like that when I was um, in preschool and kindergarten. And then, uh like, you know, the cat was in the tree, and, you know, the cat fell out of the tree, things like that. Uh, and then I just always liked to write, and I always liked to read, and the two just seemed to go together naturally. So, um... <laughs>
2: I hear a cat purring.
0: <laughs> cat purring. <laughs> should I, is, is that disturbing? Should I, should I kick her off my lap?
2: <laughs> well, you were just talking about a cat in a tree, so it kind of seems appropriate.
0: Right, yeah. Um. Yeah, so I just, I <laughs> rock let me rub your tummy. Um, I just, I just kept writing. I just, I feel like I've been writing forever. And a lot of it was crap. Um, but you know, when you do it long enough, I guess eventually something, something good comes out, hopefully. I always wanted to be a writer. And in high school, I, I wrote all kinds of, you know, dark and twisted tales. And then it, I went to college and it seemed like I started studying more nonfiction essay writing and I would write short stories on the side and poetry. I got something published here and there, like a poem here and an essay here, but it wasn't until the end of law school when I, you know, it, it hit me square in the face that you know I was going to have to be a lawyer for the rest of my life, and I, I, I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. So after I passed the bar and and after you know after graduation the bar, I told myself, well, take some time, and, and this is it. You've never taken any time off for yourself. and just write and see what happens. And I sort of put myself in a, in a weird zone and I wrote a book in a month. I just, you know, I just sat down and I did it and I revised it and I sent it out and I sold it and I sold several others and I just decided to start writing full time.
1: What what was the first book?
0: Tiger Eye. It was a paranormal romance about a metalsmith that goes to China and she's uh, visiting Panjian, the dirt market, and she buys this box and when she opens it up, this cursed two thousand year old warrior springs free and declares himself her servant. She can do anything she wants with him. <laughs> and of course Della being being the nice the nice individual that she is, she says it to you know she wants to save that. And now it's being turned into a, a video game actually.
2: Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um what's uh, what's going on with the video game and uh, when's it gonna be out and what type of game is it gonna be? That kind of thing.
0: It's, it's really, yeah it's really it's one of those casual games. Um you know hidden objects um, puzzles, things like that. But the difference is that it actually follows the quad novel itself. So when you're playing the game, you solve riddles that are based off of the book itself. And then you're given these cutscenes that are actually like animated scenes from, from the books with voice actors and things like that. And so as you play the game, you, you just follow the plot of the book. You're, you're actually experiencing the book in a game format. And it's coming out from Passion Fruit Games, uh, PassionFruitGames.com and I believe the actual release will be in the middle of April, 2010.
2: Okay, so you mentioned that you decided you didn't want to be a lawyer for the rest of your life. Um, Why did you Mm -hmm. decide to go to law school in the first place, and uh, what what was it that made you decide to follow the path of the writer instead?
0: Well, my undergrad degree was in East Asian Studies and Biomedical Ethics, and it's not really easy to get a job with that degree, and I like writing and I like reading. And I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know, let's, let's try law school. Let's just keep going to school and, you know, postpone the actual job search. And, and I'm, I'm a practical person in a sense. I wanted something, um, where I felt like I could always get a job and being a lawyer, presumably I would be able to find something, you know, something to pay the bills with. So, um, so I went to law school and I'm happy I did because I loved law school. I really, really had a wonderful time in law school. I loved learning about the law. I loved everything that I did there. But actually being a lawyer is a whole different thing. And I just knew my own personality, and I knew I knew my reaction to certain situations. I just knew that if I continued on as a lawyer in five or ten years, I would be a totally different person. I wouldn't be able to recognize myself. And writing was always my first love. And I thought, you know, I, I had to give it a chance. I just had to try to at least get something published, even if i practiced law for the rest of my life. Even if it never panned out, I just had to try. Um, or I just knew I would regret it if I didn't. So, you know, that's why I took the time off and, and wrote my little heart out. And luckily for me, it, it panned out.
1: Okay, so you've you've written two novel series, The Dirk and Steel and The Hunter Kiss. Uh, what are these books about, and how did you come up with the ideas?
0: Well, the Dirk and Steel series, I just—the first book in the series is Tiger Eye. And at the time, I was just writing a story that I thought would be fun to read, and I wasn't really thinking about a series. After I started sending the book out, actually after that first novel was sold, they asked me, you know, are you could this be a series? Are you, you know, were you planning one? And I said, oh, okay, sure. Um, I'm not going to say no. So that's really how it came about. And I'm not good at planning ahead, so the series has sort of developed. The series basically is about this detective agency called breakfast Steel, and it's, yeah, it yeah sounds corny. It sounds like a you know '74 movie, and everyone it, everyone in the book is aware of that, and they make fun of it. But it's just filled with psychic and um, creatures out of legend, and it's set in this contemporary modern world. And the, the whole premise of this agency is—it's not so much a detective agency as it is a group of people that sort of keep each other secret and find ways to live in this modern world without exposing their secrets. So, and they—you know—they have big adventures and there's conspiracy and you know, sex and violence and all kinds of crazy stuff. But the series has evolved with each book. And just sort of on its own, like I said, I don't plan ahead. So as I write the book, different things will come out or I'll get new ideas about, you know, where I want to take one organization or another. And so it's just sort of after 10 or 11 books, I think it is now, it's sort of become its own thing. It's taken on a life of its own. As far as the other series goes, which is the Hunter Kiss series, it's classified as urban fantasy. The Durk and Steel series is much more romantic. It's a carnival romance. Where basically each book focuses on a new hero and heroine and follows them, follows their adventures as they fall in love, and there's you know always a happy ending. All kinds of you know crazy things can happen, and there'd be you know like I wrote one novel that was set in um, the Congo where you know people were getting struck down with Ebola, and you know the hero and heroine were getting tortured, and all kinds of all kinds of crazy stuff. You know human experimentation that just Everything, but there's a happy ending, so it was—it's all good.
1: <laughs> so you're like, "Love is in the air." Oh wait, no, that's Love a full one. Love is in the
0: air, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the series is—it's is, is much darker, and it's um, a continuing series. It's basically about a woman who's covered in living tattoos, and they peel off her body at night to form her own demonic army. It is a fantasy, but it also deals with, for example, the demons that are imprisoned around the earth. Are actually more like they're more like aliens from another world that came to Earth via this sort of interdimensional pathway that I call the labyrinth, and they did battle with these other alien creatures that are their energy, and they can they can manipulate human flesh, you know, to make you know monsters or to give themselves powers, and so these energy based beings they inhabit human bodies, and they did battle with these quote demons that they imprisoned and then these energy-based beings made wardens which the heroine Maxine is is one of those wardens um in order to sort of you know guard this veil and keep these demons from escaping and but that was you know that giant battle was 10,000 years ago and now 10,000 years have passed and it's modern day and the veil is breaking down and Maxine is the old only warden left and she's developed powers beyond what those original energy-based beings you know anticipated and now she's a threat to them as well it's kind of convoluted but it's been really fun to write
1: <laughs> so you, you mentioned that the protagonist is covered with tattoos do you have any yeah. tattoos yourself
0: no i don't i i love looking at tattoos but for me personally i just i get tired of things i just you know if i gave myself a tattoo if i even if it was one that i i desperately wanted probably about a week or two later you know maybe maybe i'm exaggerating a little bit but you know it, after a short amount of time, I'd be very tired of it. I'd want something new and just, um, and also, I don't think tattoos age that well. You well, know, you think about it. If you get a tattoo, you know, when you're young, your skin's firm, you know, you're, you're looking good. You're looking good.
2: <laughs> What, 30, oh, 40 years? You can tell of that life. you're like real <laughs> Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, as a, as an undergrad, well, you mentioned that you majored in East Asian languages and cultures and, uh, and you also minored in biomedical ethics. Do you been able to use any of that knowledge, uh, or even your legal studies, uh, in your writing?
0: A lot of my books do deal with themes of genetic engineering and the misuse of science and, and things like that. I was always interested in, in those things before I got my degree, so it's probably just a continuation of of that. As far as East Asian Asian influence goes, I do spend a lot of time. Besides the fact I have a degree in East Asian studies, I spend a lot of time in China. And it seems like when I start looking back on the books I've written, I would say, you know, there's been about three or four that, that have been set in Asia. Yeah, there's an influence. Um, like I said, I don't think about it very often. But, yeah, it's there.
1: Um, have you had any interesting experiences in China that you could tell us about?
0: If you ask me to tell you, like, one crazy story of, you know, something you know strange that happened, it would be hard for me to, to think of one. Because, actually, this is what I tell people about, you know, writing fantasies in, in a contemporary urban setting. In a way, it's not that difficult, and not because I'm writing about things I'm familiar with, but because the world is so strange. You know, truth really is stranger than fiction. For example, when you go to Beijing, it, it's a very urban environment, um, and on the surface of it, you can look at the skyscrapers and you can, you know, look at all the freeways and the cars, and you say, you know, like I understand this. But then you go a little deeper, and you walk down um, into the hutongs, or you go to the Forbidden City, or in uh, the markets where the locals go, or just Whatever, you take a walk, you take a drive okay. into the hills you know, near the Great Wall. You see things that are, in a way, they're not, and of course, they're not unusual to people who live there, but because you're not used to them, they're unusual to you, and it it makes you look at the world just a little bit differently. Be, it's good for it's good for the imagination. It's good for you know, all those creative juices.
1: Uh, what's the fantasy and science fiction writing scene in China like?
0: I haven't really interacted that much with many of the writers over there because I don't really know where they are. I mean, I've tried, I've tried to find them. Uh, what I've been told is that the readership is huge in China for science fiction. And I know when I go to the bookstores and ones like the Gong Fu novels, like the sword, you know, the, the historical novels, the most popular novels I think in China are the ones featuring magic and sword fighting. And they're kind of sometimes based on historical figures, but they're hugely popular. I mean, and when you see the movies that are coming out in China, even historical movies, there's, you know, a fantasy bent to them.
1: You know, I I had a roommate who was from China, and he asked me, you know, I showed him like a Realms of Fantasy magazine that I was in, and he said, how many people read this? And I said, I don't know, I think, you know, sort of 15 to 20,000. And he's like, oh, you know, in China, the magazine would have over a million people reading it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. Every bookstore I've been to in China, they're like giant warehouses. They're in the middle of the city, there's six stories. Six or seven stories high, they're they're massive places, and they're packed. They're just packed with people, just you know, standing in the aisles reading, you know, browsing and reading. And you know, you can you can look at the books and you'll see places where little pages were marked because you know people will come to the bookstore to read and then they'll mark their place and then come back like, <laughs> <laughs> You see in cinema a lot of fantasy movies. I haven't seen so much science fiction, Chinese science fiction movies, but you see a lot of Chinese fantasy movies.
1: Well, actually, speaking of science fiction, I was just reading that um, China is putting in one, uh, the first of a sort of high-tech levitating train, and yes. that China's actually ahead of us really in technology. I mean, does it feel uh, at all like science fiction when you travel in china?
0: It, it feels like it feels like a combination of science fiction and and fantasy, um, just because everyone has a cell phone. It doesn't matter if you are in the most remote village on the outskirts of Mongolia, everyone there has a cell phone. Or a satellite dish, you know, watching TV, and you know, and their cell phone technology in China is a, a lot more advanced than what we've got here.
1: You mentioned in an interview, I think the Shanghai um, skyline is being really impressive. Yeah,
0: it's very interesting. Uh, it feels a little Blade Runner sometimes when, when you're in Shanghai and you see the skyline, and then you're walking, and you know, it's raining, and the skyline's beautiful, and then you you see the little the little uh, food carts and, and the little markets where people are selling fruit and and uh, you know, seafood and things like that. The one thing about Shanghai and Beijing is that there's a very organic feel to both the technology that you see there and the melding of technology and the way people live, because the technology is everywhere. But at the same time, you can walk into a hutong in Beijing, you know, there's a skyscraper. You can see the skyscrapers, but then you're walking into a hutong in Beijing, which is just you know, a collection of alleys and, and courtyard homes, you feel like you've been transport you know fifty to hundred years in the past and but at the same time it works it just it seems to fit together so seamlessly
2: okay, uh shifting gears a bit back uh towards fiction stuff um you created a fan fiction website called Wolverine and jubilee dot com'
0: <laughs> uh, no about that for years <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh so what was your experience like that uh what was your experience writing fan fiction and is is that something you'd recommend to aspiring authors or?
0: I know people. some people will get mad at me when I say this, but I do. Before I started writing fanfiction, I'd always had trouble finishing short stories and, and just actually finishing, you know, I the first novel I ever finished from beginning to end was Tiger Eye. But uh, as far as short stories went and things like that, I never finished them until I started writing fanfiction. And there was no pressure. I think that's the wonderful thing about it is there's no pressure. You take these characters and you can run with them and you can do, you just basically are writing for yourself. And it's fun, and uh, it gives you good practice. And as you know, as far as plot, because even with fan fiction, you know, the really good fan fiction has great plot, great character work, great dialogue, all of that. It's a really good way to practice those basic, basic skills. And I know that some people complain about uh, it's you are you know, you're stealing other people's work, but you're not being paid for it. As a former fan fiction writer, I feel like saying lighten up a little bit.
1: And so you sort of graduated, right, from the. Uh, Jubilee dot com. So you're actually are getting paid for it now. You're writing for Marvel. Yeah, actually,
0: I'm. It's strange because I never actually dreamed that I would be writing for Marvel. I wrote fan fiction, and then I stopped writing fan fiction when I started working on my more you know original work, and and then I wrote my novel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I wrote Tiger Eye, then I went to Clarion. I haven't written fan fiction in years. But what happened was that. At my first world fantasy in tucson i met my agent and uh, Lucianne diver and we were talking and, and it was halloween her son um, ran up and he was wearing this really adorable spider-man costume and i said oh he's so cute i said oh i love marvel i love you know the x-men all that and she said well <laughs> i happen to know an editor who's you know acquiring prose writers for marvel they just signed a licensing deal with pocket and you know maybe you should submit a proposal and I think at the time, the Spider-Man movie was coming out, or close to coming out. So everyone was after, after telling a Spider-Man tale. But no one had asked to do the X-Men. And, of course, the X-Men are my first love. So I submitted a proposal, and Jen Heddle at Pocket liked it, and Marvel liked it. And so I, I wrote I wrote a book for them, you know, Dark Mirror. And it was the first X-Men book that came out in that particular line. And that was my foot in the door at Marvel, because they liked the work, and they liked the characterization. And I introduced myself to their uh, recruitment guy at New York Comic-Con. And I said, well, I'm sure you have, you know, you have tons and tons of writers, but if you're ever looking for anyone, you know, here I am. And it took three years of sort of going back and forth, but eventually they gave me a, a miniseries, NYX, about homeless mutant kids uh, living in New York City. And that was six issues, and I, I worked on that. and. Things sort of kept falling my way. Um, they liked the work I did on NYX. And so John Barber and and Daniel Way asked if I, you know, wanted to work on Dark Wolverine. So I said, sure. And then I did that. And now I'm just, I'm doing more work for Marvel. Um, actually some I can't talk about yet, but, uh, it's just been a wonderful experience and it was totally, totally unexpected dream come true, but totally unexpected.
1: So you mentioned that you went to the Clarion Writers' Workshop. Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Oh, it was wonderful. Um, It was uh, Clarion East at East Lansing, Michigan. I actually found out that I had sold my book the second week I was there, which was really interesting. But actually, there was so much work to do just writing short stories that I held that news in my heart. I tucked it away, but basically I just got back to work. But it was six weeks of just this – it was an amazing six weeks, and it was amazing to the people. And we were all there to write and to work on our craft, and we had wonderful, wonderful teachers. I, I just can't say enough good things about it. Um, I'm kind of sad they're not in Michigan anymore that they, you know, they went out to California. But there's something about living in that sorority house that was just nuts. Um, but it
1: was—I
0: don't know—I I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to go. I say go if you can do it. It's good training in a lot of different ways. It's good training not just for the writing. It's But it's it's good training also because if you don't already have a thick skin before you go to Clarion, hopefully you will develop one by the end of it. Because to be a professional writer, you have to have a very thick skin. And there's something about sitting in a critique circle every day or every other day and having people comment on your work, sometimes brutally, that is good for you as a writer. Um, It's good training um, because people, if you continue to do it professionally, will not always be as nice. But... At least it, it'll be something that you've experienced before. But no, it was wonderful. It was really, really wonderful.
1: So, so did you ever tell your classmates that you had sold this book while you were there?
0: Oh yeah, I I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, I just kept my mouth shut.
2: <laughs> who are some of your favorite authors uh, currently?
0: I'm a huge fan of Kelly Link. Huge fan of Sarah Dunanty, who writes historical fiction. She wrote a uh, she wrote the novel Into the Wilderness, which I thought was just wonderful. You know, as far as like the romance genre goes, I love Liz Carlisle. I love Lynn Kurland, Liz, uh, Suzanne Brockman, Glenn Vale. As far as fantasy goes, I really love the latest installment of, was it Brandon Sanderson who wrote the last Robert Jordan book along with, you know, using Robert Jordan's notes and, and, yeah, actually, I really enjoyed that book. And I had kind of gone away from the series. I had read the first, the first novel, Eye of the World, when I was in high school. And I remember all of my friends we just went nuts over that series. We just ate it up. Robert Jordan was giving a signing in Seattle and we went and we were so we, we brought we only brought one book because we hated it. We were trying kind to of be polite. And we, we went to this little Walden book in the mall and he was sitting there and there there wasn't anyone out there and we were so shy and so in awe of him. We didn't dare like talk to him. But afterwards, <laughs> afterwards we regretted it because he was so nice and we you know we wish we had had the courage to actually, you know, engage with him and, and ask him questions and um and actually bring more books for him to sign. He here. Um who else? Um oh yeah, Maybe I should Peter the computer up to take a look.
2: Oh what were we gonna say? I was saying, maybe you have a favorite anthologist you'd like to mention. I mean, you know, I don't know if you...
0: Well, John, you're so special. I love you to pieces. <laughs> you're my favorite forever and ever and ever. You and Lou Anders. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh,
2: well, uh, so what are you working on now, and uh, what do you have coming out soon?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, right now, I'm working on the third 106th novel, which is called A Wild Life, and that comes out in August, August 2010. And we'll see here. I've got a story coming out uh, with Lou Anderson, in an anthology called... Sorry, sorry, Don.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you have one of my stories. What's mm-hmm. that anthology coming out, by the way?
2: <laughs> uh, it's not scheduled yet, so probably in 2011.
0: Okay. Um, but the, the anthology with Lou is called With Great Power, and that's coming out in July, I think. I have another anthology... Um another story coming out in an anthology with George R. 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 Martin called um Songs of Blood and Love or Songs of Love and Death or something like that. I can't remember. Originally it was called Star Lovers, but I think the marketing department thought that sounded too foo foo. <laughs> so they they, uh, they they changed the title. I have a novel, uh, another romance novel called Stars Below. It's a jerk and steel novel and that's what I think is coming out in June. But that could change. And that's a sort of a, a merman it's a merman-pirate-sea-monster romance. Um, not the merman's not having a romance with a sea monster. But <laughs> it's just, it's, it's
1: in it. That would be a little weird.
0: It would be a little bit weird, but I'm sure there are some people who would find it fascinating.
2: It would be totally hot, but weird. Yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then, and, then, <laughs> and then just all kinds of comics books. Every month there's going to be comics coming out. Oddly enough, I, I wrote a Wolverine and Jubilee story a short short comic book story that's coming out in an, an all-female anthology i think that that one's coming out in march or april for marvel
2: i
1: guess could could so, you talk about the the dark wolverine i don't know if you really yeah
0: yeah absolutely um what do you i mean what do you want to know about it
1: what why is why is he so dark, <laughs> <laughs> dark. <laughs> um, does it take place at night i mean i just don't know anything about it <laughs>
0: you know he's got daddy issues i i don't i don't i don't have any control over the titles or or marketing basically he's is his father okay wolverine had this thing with this japanese woman um 65 years ago and she bore a son dawkin that wolverine didn't know about and at some point dawkin's mother is killed some group, assassin group, Romulus, these guys, they come and they train him and turn him into this, you know, killing machine. And then it's, you know, he finds out or he thinks that Wolverine killed his mother. You know, Wolverine didn't, but he, that's what he thinks. And so he, you know, he has all these daddy issues. You know, he's a psychopath. He's, he's really messed up. He loves to manipulate people. He has no conscience whatsoever. His only focus is attaining power and he will do anything to to further his goal in that regard he's very dangerous he's just he's just mean as hell but he's also there's also this sense that he's evolving in the way that he views the world and he's out in the world now before he was sort of living in the shadows you know just sort of doing his own thing and now he's out in the world and he's he's being tested in ways that he hadn't before and so he's still not a good person by any stretch of the imagination he won't be for you know a while yet but there's this germ of a possibility that one day he could be a hero um like his father and so um it's very interesting playing with that character and playing with those possibilities even if everything he's done up until now has been you know pretty nasty
1: so who would win in a fight between wolverine and spider-man
0: i don't know I think they would both do very well. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm leaning I'm leaning towards Spider Man actually, just because he could mobilize, you know, Wolverine. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. I think he could. And then he'd get away really fast. But Wolverine is a man of infinite patience. So I think eventually in the long term, probably he would end up he would end up getting Spider Man, but it would take a little bit take a little bit
2: of planning. What superhero would you most like to find yourself trapped in a romance novel with?
0: Oh gosh. Um Superman or Batman? Or Wolverine? <laughs> Maybe Gambit.
1: <laughs> and, and a sea serpent. <laughs>
0: and, a and a merman. And a shapeshifter.
1: <laughs> what are your cats' names?
0: Um, the one sitting beside me right now is Roxanne. Um, I call them, they're the five cat death squad because they're so good at, they're so efficient at <sighs> killing mice. Although they haven't, they haven't had to kill mice lately because they're in a the new house. But in the old farmhouse, oh, it was just blood and guts everywhere. It was wonderful. Um, but there's Roxanne, and there's Petula, and Persimmon, and Zucchini Puccini, and Lilac. Am I forgetting anyone? No, I don't think so. And then, of course, there's Daisy the Poodle, who rides around a lot on my back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all. that's uh, everything we ever wanted to know.
0: <laughs> Probably more <laughs> than perhaps you wanted to know.
1: Perhaps more. I,
0: I remember um, there was my author photo for this romance novel that actually shows the little dog backpack and, you know, Daisy in the backpack. But for Tiger Eye, I thought I was being funny. And actually, I think my bio may still be the same. I'm not sure. But for that novel, I was joking around. And I, you know, I gave my credentials. But then I said the end. you know, she also runs a taxi service for poodles. <laughs> and I was like, ha, ha, ha. Well, they didn't put the picture with <laughs> the bio of that book. And so what happened was I was getting emails from people actually Definitely serious emails asking me what it's like yeah. to run a taxi trip.
1: No, I, I saw that on your FAQ, and I was like, "What is that all about?"
0: <laughs> yeah, no, people really send me emails, and they were genuinely curious about what that's like. And I, you know, I'm sorry, it just you know, I was I was just joking, and they were like, "Okay, actually, I, well, no, I can't really imagine running a business like that, although with poodles, no, okay, let's not go there. Anyway." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, uh, (laughs) uh, Marjorie M. Wu, thank you very much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. And
2: that was our interview.
1: Hey, that's my line.
2: You always say it.
1: (laughs) All right, I'll let you say it just this once. So, yeah, so now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about comics. So I've been thinking about this, and, you know, I was never, like, a huge superhero comic book reader growing up. And I was trying to think about why that was because you know, given all my other interests, you would think it was the kind of thing that I would be drawn to. And I did really like, uh, you know, when we were kids, there was this cartoon Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and I really liked that. And uh, this one time, I caught this X-Men cartoon that I really liked. But the problem with that is that you know, sometimes stuff is on TV, and then you don't know when it's on. And you know, I never saw saw it again until years later. If someone can, it was it was great though. There was. uh, it had Nightcrawler, and all the heroes were on a sort of spaceship, and it was going to blow up, and he had to grab two power cables and use his body as a conduit for all the energy to keep the ship from blowing up, and then he was looking at a video monitor where their other ship that they were escaping onto was, and so he was going to teleport onto it at the last moment, and then the ship blows up, and everybody's like, hey, where's Nightcrawler? I guess he's dead. But then he kind of <laughs> stumbles out of a closet, and he's got you know smoke coming off of him. And I was like, this is great. But then I never caught the show again. So if anyone can tell me what episode that was, I'd actually be curious to see it. But uh, I don't know. Did, were you like big into superhero comics growing up?
2: Uh, Well, not growing up so much as when like, I mean, when I was about 18 or so or maybe uh, maybe a year or two younger than that, Um, my uh, my sister got married and uh, her husband was heavy into comics and. So when I was hanging out with them at some point, uh, you know, they sort of got me hooked on uh, Spider-Man was the first uh, one that I started reading. I-, I obsessively read superhero comics for several years, and at some point I, had a- I kind of had to give them up because I had to make a decision if I was going to spend my money on books or comic books. Because I was spending so much of my income on the- those two things, like I couldn't continue to do both. I had to, you know, it came to the point where I just had to make a decision, and I and I chose books you know so i sort of stopped reading uh superhero comics for a long time and you know i've I've since gotten back into reading comics a bit but i i haven't uh dove back into superhero comics because that way lies madness to some degree you know because there are so many superhero comics and they're all sort of interrelated so like you know you have something set in the marvel universe you you get these crossovers and so like if you're reading spider-man you start to kind of wonder well you know what what are these other guys doing you know and or or something like the avengers is even worse you know where you know, it's like a super team. I haven't been able to dare to, uh, you know, dip my toe back in those waters since then because, uh, you know, I just don't have the time. I mean, at least I, now I could actually afford it, but I don't have the time to read them all. Well, no, I mean, the expense
1: is definitely a factor, especially since you can kind of read a comic book so quickly. You know, sometimes friends of mine would have comics and I would, I would read them and I would just get frustrated because I would read the whole thing in eight minutes and then I would, would <laughs> want to know what happened next. And, you know, you would have to try to find the next issue. But another thing is, it it seems like, like, thinking back, I can't even remember where I would have bought a comic book that was just, you know, available to me. I mean, I'm I'm sure I could have had my parents drive me to a comic book store if I was really motivated. But, you know, I I spent most of my time in bookstores. And and when we were kids, bookstores didn't really carry comic books, you know. So I would read, like, The Far Side and Calvin and Hobbes and Bloom County and, and sort of, you know, stuff like that was in bookstores. But they didn't have superhero comics.
2: Oh, some of them did. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, during my comic book heyday, I was actually working at a Walden books and, um, and that Walden books did have a little spinner rack of comics. I mean, not a great selection or anything, but, uh, that, it was sort of like the, the drug pusher on the corner, you know, just sort of tempting you into reading, you know, just, just read a few, just, just read one. Look, like you work at the store, you could just borrow this you could just look at this one on your lunch break. And then, uh, so it was like, it was my sampler rack. And then, uh, you know, and then I sort of wanted to read all these other ones like I was just talking about. And uh, so that, that got me into going to the comic book store. And, you know, once you get to the comic book store, it's all over. Because, you know, they'll they'll say, hey, oh, you know, hey, if you want to pick up those titles every every time, you know, just let me know which ones you want. I'll, I'll keep them back here behind the counter for you. So, you know, you don't have to worry about missing out on any issues. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, your pile gets bigger and bigger as time goes on. And uh, you don't realize that you're spending, you know, you know, half your paycheck every, every week on uh, comic books. and
1: <laughs> But you mentioned these spinner racks, and I mean, I kind of have this mental image of comic books on a spinner rack as sort of a classic thing, but like thinking about my actual childhood, I don't really remember coming across those particularly. And, you know, you would think, I think a generation or two before when millions of people were reading comic books, you know, that comic books, these spinner racks were at drugstores and, you know, whatever, and, 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 you know, you couldn't help run across them and and i feel like they've sort of disappeared Mm -hmm. um and i I was thinking it's sort of the same thing as with the the short fiction magazines you know that last week we were talking about isaac asimov and he worked at his parents candy store growing up which is how he got into reading the science fiction magazines because they carry them in the candy store and you know if i don't i don't actually don't really ever go to a candy store but if (laughs) i if i were to go to one i wouldn't imagine that they would be carrying science fiction magazines in them and so it's it does seem like you know it, it, there's sort of this barrier to entry because you, you really have to get to the comic book store to really get into the comic books. And if you don't make that first step, they're just sort of not in front of you, you know?
2: Right. Well, I mean, at least there was that barrier when we were kids. I mean, nowadays, uh, every bookstore is has a huge section devoted to graphic novels, which is, you know, sort of collected issues worth of comics. And uh, so, you know, it's a lot easier to get into them these days. And also there's the internet, which will sort of, the marketing of the Internet allows people to get exposed to comics in a way that they weren't, you know, exposed to beforehand. But uh, I, I was going to say about the, you know, disappearance of the spinner racks. Uh, I, I mean, I, went, I I grew up mostly in Florida. And so I wonder if, if, if that was sort of a regional difference where, like, where you grew up in New York, maybe they just didn't, you know, they had already disappeared. But down in Florida, maybe they were still around because, uh, you know, the bookstore I worked at had them. And then also, I, I know I've definitely gone in. I definitely had gone into like a Walgreens or something, and uh, they had one there um you know uh there weren't there weren't like a lot of mom and pop type shops down where i lived in florida so i mean i couldn't say if uh you know your local drugstore or whatever would have a spinner rack but you know something like a big chain like walgreens used to have them the incidental uh exposure to comics was probably you know harder harder to come by than it is today certainly
1: i mean when i was sort of in high school i think they actually did open up a uh, comic book store in my town you know that i i could walk to And, uh, but at that point I was really more into the role-playing games. And so I would go over there every day, you know, and check out what role-playing game stuff they had. And even like, it was, it was a comic book store. So I imagine they must've had comic books, but even in my mind, they must've had them, you know, mostly behind the counter or something, I guess, maybe so kids wouldn't steal them or mess them up or something. But it was really great for me having that store though, because it was like where I discovered Dragon Magazine, which was the first magazine Mm -hmm. I submitted uh, fiction too and you know I, I picked up a lot of great stuff there and and but i was always the only person in there and so sometimes i would just go <laughs> in and you know and just buy stuff i didn't really even need like more dice or something just because i wanted this store to, to stick around but you always knew it was doomed and mm-hmm. uh, and and it, it disappeared pretty quickly
2: you know it's funny i i always wondered about stores like that because like you, you see a comic book store and you would think that oh well the comic book store it would make sense if they have role playing mm-hmm. games as well Or it would make sense if they had, you know, some science fiction paperbacks or something as well. But it's not necessarily true. A lot of comic book stores only sold comic books um, or else they sold comic books in like, you know, collectible card games or like baseball cards, you know, which doesn't seem like the same market at all to me. But, um, you know, I I was always surprised that they were very specific in what they were focused on because it seemed like, you know if if there was a store that had you know both science fiction books and comic books and role playing game books i mean it's like where else would i need to shop
1: <laughs> well you know marjorie was talking about um people in china marking the books that they're reading and then just going back to the store over and over and reading the books there and and i confess i i, I do that sometimes with <laughs> uh with comic books or with the uh, you know with the graphic novels because you know you can read them so fast that and and they they cost so much that you know, I'm kind of like, well, I could just stand here and read this whole thing. Why do I want to pay money and take it home? And I'm probably not going to read it more than once unless it's something really amazing. And, you know, and when you go to the bookstores, every whenever you go to the graphic novel section, there's just like a dozen kids just sitting there reading <laughs> reading the comic books. And I used to look at those kids and, and say, oh, you cheapskates. And <laughs> now I've sort of turned into one of them. You know, I, I wish that there was just some sort of legitimate way to do that then it would be nice if you could just pay you know a few bucks an hour or something to just sit there and read the comic books and not feel guilty about it
2: i mean we've been talking about the ways in which uh, people get exposed to comic books and uh, uh, i mean we we haven't mentioned the most obvious way these days i guess which is all the superhero movies that are being made these days you know like Like Spider-Man and X-Men and, you know, Batman and, you know, all all these superhero movies that, uh, you know, there are these huge blockbuster events where, like, for years, I mean, there was nothing. I mean, you had, like, Superman and that was almost it. It's like that was, like, the only legitimate superhero movie out there. And then now it's like, you know, superheroes are big business. I mean, you've got Comic-Con and, you know, there's the San Diego Comic-Con, which is the original one. And then you've got, like, the New York Comic-Con, which is, like, growing to be very large as well. And so you have these these huge major um, conventions that are just all revolving around superheroes to some degree. I mean, it's either the sup- the superheroes coming out in the movies or or just in the comic books themselves. So, um, you know, that's reaching you know the current generation. That's the way they're they're getting hooked on comics is probably through exposure from the movies.
1: Actually, you know, on on the subject of the movies, I had something I, I wanted a, a plea to to people who make comic book movies is that sometimes they just put in these jokes that just, for me, really break the suspension of disbelief, and I wish they would stop doing that. Like, an example is in the first X-Men movie. Um, you know, they they put on their costumes, and their costumes don't really look like the costumes in the comic book. They're they're just black in the movie, and, and Wolverine says, you guys actually go out in these things, and Cyclops says, well, what would you prefer, a yellow spandex? And that, uh, that line just drives me crazy, because, you know, <laughs> The only reason it's funny is because for a moment you stop believing that any of this is real and you're thinking about how this is an adaptation of a comic book. And uh, I take my superhero movies seriously and I don't like those little moments of making fun of the whole enterprise.
2: Yeah, I hear you. I mean, because, you know, the thing is, if they had cut that part of the line out and just had Wolverine say you guys go out in these things, it, it might actually be kind of funny to the same audience anyway, because... You know, you're probably sitting there watching it thinking, hey, they, those those uniforms look awesome, you know, and then and you're thinking in your mind of how they look in the comic book. And it's like, oh, um, they're complaining about that. But that's actually a huge improvement. Yeah, well,
1: as long as I like the jo- I mean, I don't mind if a joke sort of plays to the comic book readers as long as it also works within the context of the reality of the movie story. You know, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Like another like in X-Men 2, they did kind of another thing like that where. In X Men Two, there's a really overt parallel drawn between the plight of the mutants in the X Men universe and the plight of gays in America, mm-hmm. which, um, for the most part, I really like. I thought I thought it gave the movie sort of a, a sincerity and seriousness um, that I thought was really good. But there's and there's a scene where you know Bobby Drake basically comes out to his parents as a mutant, uh, which I thought was great. But there's a then his mom says, um, "You know, have you tried not being a mutant?" Mm-hmm. And it's it's again, it's like there's it doesn't make sense within, you know, within the context of this story. It's just it's like a, a joke that depends upon you thinking for a moment. None of this stuff is, is real, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if they I, just just a plea to movie makers, you know, those jokes aren't worth it.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, if we're going to start making pleas to movie makers, we could probably come up with a pretty long list of uh, things we can ask them not to do when making superhero movies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well So maybe we should move on. then. <laughs>
2: Well, maybe we'll leave it up to our, our listeners to, you know, tell us that in the feedback on the on the blog.
1: But, um, you know, you were talking about how how people get exposed to comic books. And, and when I was a kid, there was something I thought was really cool as I was out on Halloween one night. And there was this guy, I don't know, I, I remember him as being sort of a cool younger guy. And he, instead of giving out candy for Halloween, he was giving out comic books. Hmm. And he just had these big, I don't know where he got them, just these big pallets of comic books. And he was just giving them out. and whatever uh adult I was with asked just sort of asked him about this and he just said, you know, I just thought, you know, these kids don't need to eat any more candy <laughs> Which is certainly true. And it's just a good way to, you know, maybe get them into reading instead. That's very cool. The the comic book actually he gave me, I mean, I remember it really vividly. I unfortunately don't remember the name. It wasn't a, a major thing, I don't think. But I just, you know, he just gave me this comic book and I was kinda of like, um oh, okay and then I ended up reading it over and over and over again. And there was a, a moment in it I've always really liked, where there's a, an evil guy from another dimension who's going to planning to take over Earth, and he asks his his sexy assistant, you know, what what time is it now in London or whatever, and she tells him, and she says, "You still haven't gotten the hang of time zones, have you?" And he says, "A barbaric concept. When I rule <laughs> this world, they'll be abolished." And I I always just really liked that moment. I I wonder if maybe he could get us on the metric system while he's at it, <laughs> sort of an evil uh, overlord is just about the only way you can imagine some sensible reform like that taking place.
2: You know, I'm right with that guy though. I can't I can't manage time zones. I I need I need a sexy assistant to also tell me what <laughs> time it is in London because if I'm expected to have a meeting with someone in London I I'm not going to be on time. Oh, but what you were saying uh, kind of reminded me of uh, an event from my childhood which involves superheroes. Um I vividly remember a time when, you know, I'm, I I must have been 5 years old or younger when um there was a a guy dressed up as spider-man who was at the mall or something and he was there so that you know kids could go take get their picture taken with him and so forth and i know my parents took me down there to see him because apparently i loved spider-man you know and he just scared the crap out of me i like i i just wept like you know somebody had had just killed my puppy um i mean you know and there's a picture of me like sitting on spider-man's lap just bawling my eyes
1: (laughs) out. You know, when I lived in L- L.A. For a, for a while, I lived just off of Hollywood Boulevard, and you know, and in front of Man's Chinese Theater, where they have uh, sort of premieres, there are all these people dressed up as superheroes who just hang out there, you know, and they want you to give them like a dollar to have your picture taken with them. And there's actually a really interesting documentary called, I think, Confessions of a Superhero, where they interview some of these, these people. And there's this guy who's, and, I'm, and I saw this guy, the guy who dresses up as superman and he's just obsessed with superman and they go to his apartment and literally every like the whole wall every floor every horizontal surface is just covered with some sort of superman paraphernalia and this guy you know he's just living in kind of this dingy apartment and he says that he estimates that he has over a million dollars worth of superman memorabilia but he won't sell it you know because hmm. it's that important to him but sort of another uh, kind of experience i had that got kind of got me more into interested in comics as i went to when i was living in austin texas i went to the um texas book fair um and they had a you know they had a panel on um, science fiction that i wanted to see and, and so i went to that and i was kind of disappointed and in the same room um in the next hour was a thing on comics and i was like yeah well, i'll stick around for that why not and the the guys who showed up were uh, terry moore you know, I didn't know I didn't know who they were at the time, but it was Terry Moore who does *The Strangers in Paradise* and Shannon Wheeler who does *Too Much Coffee Man*. And it was just, it was just—they were so good. They were so thoughtful and articulate and interesting, and they just kept me riveted for this whole hour. And uh, you know, so of course I went right home and ordered their their graphic novels. And then I had another sort of experience, kind of like that. At I think it was at LunaCon, um, a sort of New York area science fiction convention, but they had a panel on comic books. And I sort of remembered going to this really interesting panel at the the book fair, so I went to this this one. And it was just it was just fascinating. I mean they had just the most interesting discussions. And the thing that sticks with me the most is somebody in the audience asked, How does Superman justify taking any time off? Right? How does he justify spending any time as Clark Kent or going on a date with Lois Lane when somewhere somebody's falling off a bridge or, you know, needs needs his help? And I was kind of like, yeah, that's an interesting question. And and the guy said something I thought was so interesting. He said, surely you're not spending as much time as is humanly possible helping other people, right? You could be volunteering at a soup kitchen or working an extra job to give money to charity or or whatever. So what's your excuse for spending any time on yourself? <laughs> and I, I've, I've just thought about that so much since. And just the, the, the construct of a superhero, it just... Leads to so many interesting thoughts about what are your obligations to other people, and
2: and so you took away from that discussion that you know there's no way I could possibly spend as much time as necessary in thinking about other people, so I'll just think about myself all the time. <laughs> that
1: is that right? I, I realized that really I had to devote my life to helping humanity by doing a
2: podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so I can... well, I think I think I think we're doing a good job. <laughs> you know, we're definitely helping people. I expect world peace somewhere
1: around episode 15 so. 15
2: really okay i was thinking maybe you think 25. that's yeah no you think no, no no i was thinking 25 <laughs> it's, it's gonna take longer the world's the world's pretty messed up man
1: so you know you and i uh went to this exhibit at the metropolitan museum of art called superheroes fashion and fantasy and, and so they had kind of lectures on superheroes and then they had fashion inspired by superhero costumes. And you could see some of the costumes that had been used in the movies, like they had Iron Man and uh, the Batman costume and stuff. I think you were saying that, you know, you could tell pretty much who was there because of their interest in fashion and who was there because of their interest in, in superhero comics. <laughs> and probably a lot of people assumed that we were there because of because we just look like supermodels or something. <laughs> yeah. But it was, I mean, it was sort of two kind of worlds, probably, that don't come together that often. And they had, they had some of the panels were, had, had kind of funny titles, like E Pluribus Unitard. <laughs> there was the guy who, you know, he was a costume designer for movies, and he was talking about, when you look at comic books, the costumes are basically just the human form with mm-hmm. color added. And that it's it's really hard to translate a superhero costume into reality because you're kind of like, well, what material actually is this made of? You know, because superhero costumes, they seem to be made out of this infinitely thin, infinitely flexible material. And, you know, is this denim, you know? Hmm. And, and so you a lot of times you see characters translated to the screen and you're just kind of like, not, that's not the kind of material I imagine the costume being made out of at all.
2: Yeah, I mean if you look at Spider Man's costume in the Spider Man movies, which actually looks pretty good, but like, you know, how could he possibly breathe through that? <laughs> or see, you know I mean? or see, really, I mean Yeah, really. Go ahead. But I was gonna say I was gonna say about costumes. Uh my, my favorite superhero probably actually doesn't even wear a costume, uh Silver Surfer. He's just silver and uh metallic and stuff and uh he's the most improbably cool superhero that there is. I mean if you say the Silver Surfer, it sounds like the stupidest idea ever um you know hey a guy who rides around the cosmos on a surfboard it's like and he's an alien so it doesn't even make sense like why so i guess on this other alien planet they also have surfboards that look just like our surfboards you know
1: and then the origin of the character i think is that at marvel they were just like hey surfing's really popular we should have a character who surfs hmm. you know and how just something so uh so powerful can come out of something just such a you know <laughs> kind of random right um you know i mean one of the recent graphic novels, it's, it's not superheroes, but that we've really enjoyed was Robert Kirkman's Walking Dead, um, which is just fantastic. And so I was at Kirkman's website, and he has kind of this video of him just talking about kind of the state of the comic book industry. And he says that it's, it's not a good trend that so many of the best writers are writing these like famous superheroes and doing really adult, sophisticated stories with them and that that's cool but that he wishes all these really good writers were doing their own things and that all of these classic characters were kept as more like gateway characters for for younger you know for kids that they could find and, and get into it
2: you know if you take something like captain america and make it like super sophisticated and um um challenging then yeah what are, what are what are the kids going to read um you know i mean i could picture my nephew who's uh whose stepdad is like you know in the in the in the military like he would, he would totally be the market for Captain America, but, I mean, I, I mean, it depends on what they're currently doing with it. I mean, the Captain America, I remember when I was reading it, yeah, that would be fine. But, uh, I mean, you know, if you have one of these reinventions going on with it, you know, who knows if he would even, you know, really connect with it at all. Oh, so, uh, on the subject of superheroes, I, I can't have a superhero discussion without talking about The Tick. Um, I mean, The Tick is one of these uh, parodies of superheroes that, you know, sort of requires uh, a lot of familiarity with with the long legacy of superheroes to to really get the most enjoyment out of it.
1: Yeah, I've actually I've never seen a tick, but you know I was earlier mentioning Shannon Wheeler's Too Much Coffee Man, and I think it's it's a similar sort of thing where it it's kind of a kind of cynical look at superheroes in a way. And you know Too Much Coffee Man, he's just kind of this this sort of fat, out of shape guy, and he has a big coffee cup for a forehead. But so, you know, Too Much Coffee Man never really goes on any adventures or anything, or at least you don't see them. He just kind of sits around his apartment moping and drinking too much coffee and having weird philosophical conversations with himself. You know, the the, the cover says, you know, if you like your coffee and your comic's dark, this is, mm-hmm. the, this is the one for you.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a comic called Powers that uh, actually, it's sort of a, a, another postmodern sort of uh, superhero comic you know in 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 that comic there's a there's a detective unit that specializes in like uh crimes related to the to superpowered individuals because there's only there's only like a few superheroes around but they need a special unit just devoted to uh all the crimes that that surround superheroes fighting crime because you know there's people will get killed by accident by superheroes and then you know a superhero gets murdered and so it's up to somebody to figure out who did it and but it's a a really interesting uh exploration of uh superheroes from like a different point of view
1: well it almost seems like just when i'm thinking about things i've seen over the last couple years that there are there's almost more cynical takes on superheroes than there are you know old-fashioned straightforward fun takes on superheroes i mean you know like watchmen is like that and and wanted is kind of like that and the incredibles is kind of like that Mm -hmm. and um Oh, I had another example just a second ago.
2: Jordan Martin's Wild Cards, or?
1: Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good example. You know, oh, the the Superman Returns, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, was like that, too. You know, the Dark Knight is a little bit like that, I guess. I mean, can you think of anything that's just, as a superhero who's just totally good and noble and doesn't have any uh, dark side at all?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think they kind of did away with that at some point. I mean, like, Captain America used to be like that, I think you know and they um you know at some point the writers and everybody just sort of decided that well this is all kind of still uh too silly to have anybody purely pure good you know and so they sort of tried to put some darker shading into their characters to you know make them more realistic but uh yeah i mean i mean there's certainly a lot of cynicism that's crept in so when you mentioned superman returns that reminded me of the you know, before Brandon Routh got uh, cast as Superman, you know, one of the rumors was Nicolas Cage was going to be Superman, and I mean, can you imagine a worse casting decision than that?
1: Yeah, but I mean, if you if you go on Wikipedia and read what the production was like for that movie, it's just it's amazing that it turned out as good as it did. I mean, it could have been much, much, much worse. I mean, you just read mm-hmm. all the like just weird ideas that were in at different points, and it's kind of the same thing with the Watchmen movie. I mean. If, if people are unhappy with the Watchmen movie, the way it came out, I mean, just just go and read what it, what it could have had. I mean, you know, you could have had Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, so maybe we should just be thankful for, uh, you yeah, thankful for small blessings. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And be sure to join us next week when we interview Brian Dunning of Skeptoid, one of the Internet's most popular science podcasts. See you then. Thank yeah. you. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com.
2: For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or davidbarcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Dead 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this
0: program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no
2: one.